Well, hello, everybody. My name is Bob Chalfin, and I'm honored to be here today with A.J. Wasserstein, who's the Eugene F. Williams Jr. Lecturer in the Practice of Management at the Yale School of Management. A.J. Is in, teaches courses in entrepreneurship, and A.J., welcome. Bob, thank you so much for having me. I'm so flattered, and it's great to talk with you. Well, I was honored when you said you wanted to join us, and you, um, you've written several case notes, many case notes, but I wanted to f- focus on one of your case notes, which is on the nature of seller selection in a search pr- fund project. But before we even get to that, just tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Thanks so much, Bob. It's, it's great to say hello. Um, so I'm an educator. I teach five courses at the Yale School of Management. They're all sort of search fund, small business, entrepreneurship centric. Uh, love teaching. It's great. I love writing about the topics I'm interested in exploring. So uh, educator, I, I also invest in some search funds, but my day job is being an educator. I'm not really uh, focused that much on investing. And b- before I shift into academia, I was uh, CEO and entrepreneur for about 30 years ran two small business services companies, uh, did lots of acquisitions, and it was a ton of fun. Well, you sound like uh, you're a deal junkie, which I'm saying in the most positive um, um, terms. But you speak a little bit about in your article on the nature of seller selection search fund, and you talk about telltale signs a seller is ready to sell. And when I speak to my students or anyone who's looking to buy a business, what they're always worried about is that, how do you know the seller is genuinely interested in selling? Am I wasting my time? And maybe you could just talk about that for a few minutes. Yeah, sure, Bob. Um, So when a search fund entrepreneur is marching down this path of trying to buy a business, time is precious. We both know that. So roughly people are budgeting chronologically and financially for two years to try to find a business. So that 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 runs by pretty quickly when you're trying to find a business. So I think it's really, really important to have a mindset about picking the seller as much as picking the industry and the business. So a great company in a great industry without an actionable seller is a mirage. And uh, uh, you need to find a, a, a good business, good industry with a seller who's emotionally and intellectually ready to sell. So so first, first, let me take a slight deviation, Bob, because there are sellers who will uh, waste searchers' time. And they're not doing it maliciously, but when a eager, ambitious, really smart MBA student knocks on a seller's door, that's very seductive. They wanna, they wanna have that conversation. They're flattered, they're interested. They maybe uh, want a little free consulting. They want a little free valuation. So, so that seller is doing nothing wrong, but it's the searcher's riddle and job to do some sleuthing, some uh, detective work to figure out who really is a seller and who's a pretend seller. Now, before we go even further, you talk about a search fund. And for people who maybe have not listened to some of the other podcasts, a search fund is essentially where, in many cases, a recent MBA graduate is searching for a business and their costs of searching for the business, while a portion of their 
um, salary or a, a portion of the money is paid for a salary for them. But what you're saying really applies to anyone who is sponsored in their search or who's just doing uh, the search on their own and sponsoring it on their own. That, that's correct, Bob. I'm, and I'm using the, the 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 phrase search fund generically, big yes. tent, all-encompassing umbrella for anybody who's trying to find a business to buy, to use as a platform to initiate their entrepreneurial arc. Whether it's a traditional search fund, an accelerator search fund, a, uh, a self-funded search fund, you know, g- generally we call this entrepreneurship through acquisition. Uh, you teach courses in this. I teach courses in this, um, and it's very popular on MBA campuses now. But but you know, get us back on track. Uh, I'm going to propose that these aspiring entrepreneurs need to need to ascertain and uh, identify sellers who are ready to sell. So through some research with uh, friends, collaborators, we identify six telltale signs, six signals that indicate that a seller is actually a seller and potentially ready to strike a deal and sell. So do, do you want me to? Yes, I'd love you to go through the uh, the details of the or these okay. signs. Well, well I get excited when I talk about topics like this. So slow me down or pepper me with questions as necessary. So I think the Bob, the first and most important uh, signal that searchers need to look for is that the seller has a non-economic catalyst to sell the business. So there's something going on in the seller's life that's that's causing the seller to want to leave the business. And that could be good news or it could be bad news, but it's a life cycle reason not purely an economic reason. And that could be they have a change in their health, their family's health, grandchildren, new hobbies, golf, whatever it may be. Yeah. So I I, I committed to my spouse that I was going to retire at 65. Uh, I, I have a business in Orlando, but I have new grandchildren in Seattle. We're moving to Seattle. Uh, I have a spouse that's sick. I'm burnt out from running the business for 20 years. Uh, these are all good, valid reasons for a seller to want to sell the business that's not purely economically oriented. So once the seller uh, decides that they want to sell the business, they want a reasonable and fair price, but they're they're not an institutional or professional investor that's trying to top a market or call a moment in time where the business is uh, particularly valuable. So, so it's, a, it's a lifestyle reason that's catalyzing the sale. So that's a great fact. Uh, I bought a new, I, I, I just bought new custom golf clubs. Next year, I, I, I want, it's my goal to play a hundred rounds of golf. Uh, I promised my spouse we were gonna do an around the world cruise and I'm ready to go. Uh, we we bought a condo in Florida and it's being furnished right now. We're going to be there for the next season. So those are all good reasons to hear that uh, someone wants to sell business. So, right, so that's number one. Number one. Okay. Number two is the seller has some type of vision for post-exit life. So selling a business is an enormous emotional decision. Uh, I've I've sold two businesses, so I know what it feels like to be on the other side of the bridge. 
And um, a seller, a good seller needs to be able to articulate what that post-exit life looks like. I want to do volunteer work. I want to play golf. I want to spend more time with my grandkids. I have these three hobbies that I want to spend more time with. Uh, but there needs to be some path for the person uh, to be emotionally and intellectually fulfilled and happy uh, after the exit. If they can't articulate that, they might not be ready to actually let go of the business. Now, you just used the word might not be ready. We've been involved with several deals where the seller could not articulate what they wanted to do after the sale, but they just knew they wanted to sell. It was time. And I guess you've experienced that as well. Yeah, of course. And I'm not saying that's not an actionable or viable seller, Bob, but I think it's a riskier seller that you get to the finish line and the seller sort of picks up their head and says, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I can't sell my business. Uh, this is my entire life. This is what I do. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, but testing the seller earlier in the interaction and process and hearing a seller have a crisp, well-articulated vision for post-exit life is a positive signal. Now, I'm, I'm not saying every seller has to have all six telltale signs, and it's the entrepreneur's job to figure out who's, who's a real seller and who's not a real seller. But the entrepreneur has to constantly be probing and testing and synthesizing the information to make sure that the day you're supposed to sign and wire funds, the seller doesn't go sideways. That's what this is all about. And in many cases, if they still want to be involved in the business, we've worked out deals where they could stay involved in some sort of limited or some sort of yeah. Um, yeah. Um, different manner. Well, that's a telltale sign. We'll get to that shortly. Okay. But, uh, that's our last last bullet point. But okay, so bullet number two was the seller has a clear vision for post-exit life. Uh, bullet number three is the seller can communicate that they clearly understand post-exit math. So um, when you're trying to buy a business, everyone starts with the headline number. I'm going to pay $10 million for your business. Now, right away, sellers run away with $10 million in their head, and they don't contemplate the fact that there are transaction fees. There are more than likely significant taxes, significant capital gains taxes, and the seller needs to understand what the net proceeds from the transaction will do for their life. And um, I don't need to explain this to you, Bob, or any of your listeners, but it's very challenging to replicate the income stream from a small private business with after-tax dollars in public equities and fixed income securities. You don't get certain tax advantages. Uh, you would never expect public equities or public fixed income securities to have the same returns as small private companies. And what else? Uh, so these are the frictions of a transaction. These are the leakages when you sell a business, which are all fine and normal, but the seller needs to understand that after the closing and after taxes, they need to have a rational expectation and plan to live on their after-tax, after-sale proceeds. 
There's no more car through the business. There's no more health insurance through the business. There's no more cell phone through the business. There are all these things that go away. And the earlier you test that math, so the seller understands it, the higher the probability that a transaction might might actually take place. Right. And what if and and obviously to the extent they have savings or other sources that could ameliorate that issue. Of course. But but the seller. This you don't want to be in a situation, Bob, where the seller, after spending months and months on a project, the seller calls up the potential buyer and says, I just spoke to my accountant. And my accountant explained to me that you're going to give me $10 million, but I'm only going to net $7 million after taxes and I have to pay back some debt and I'm not going to have a salary anymore. And my accountant just explained to me, I can't live on that. So I can't do the deal anymore. So that's not a bad answer, but you want to get to that answer early in the process so you don't waste time and money chasing a seller who really isn't prepared to sell the business. All right. And now the fourth reason. Uh, Fourth reason, not a reason, but a signal. The seller is willing and has demonstrated an enthusiasm to spend time and money on the sale process. So talk is cheap. We all know that, but when a seller starts writing checks to bankers, uh, I shouldn't call them bankers, to brokers, to accountants, to lawyers, uh, in the aim of facilitating a transaction, that's a positive signal. When a seller has told employees, it is my intention to sell this business, and I'm working with people to do so, that is a good signal. But with the understanding that sometimes the seller may not disclose that they want to sell their business yet. That is true, Bob, but it or is not, a, may not announce that they want to sell their business. Fully understandable, Bob, but it is a superior signal when they do. Yes. So it, it would be very common for a seller to not want to tell their employees. But when a seller does tell their employees, a potential buyer should be a little bit happier. When a seller has engaged a lawyer, a real lawyer, not their brother-in-law who's a real estate lawyer, but a real corporate transaction lawyer, and they've engaged an accountant to prepare information, those are positive hints that the seller is truly committed to getting a deal done. All right. And the fifth sign is that they have a reasonable valuation expectation. Sure. So it's very normal in the... uh, in the dance of trying to buy a business to to have the conversation about what the business is worth. And if a seller has a million dollar EBITDA business and they tell you that they think it's worth $15 million, that's fine. They could expect that number, but I would encourage my students not to be that buyer and quickly say, thank you very much. I appreciate your valuable time, but I, I need to move on. Um, If the seller communicates that I have a million dollar EBITDA business and I think it's worth somewhere between four and six million dollars, you might want to explore a little bit more. So making sure that you test early in the process the seller's expectation for valuation and and being certain that that syncs with industry standards and norms is a a positive signal to keep moving. Yes, and obviously, you know, you may not. That may not be the first question you ask the seller. No, but it's one no, of the early never. questions. Yeah, but 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 somewhere in the first or second, maybe the third conversation, you want to flush that out. If it's not a match, that's not a problem. 
but stop wasting time. So right. Yeah. And then the, the sixth sign. Sixth sign is the seller understands their post-exit role in the company. So if the seller is, is completely moving on from the company, they need to understand that they're no longer going to be involved in the business, either with its operations or its benefits. If the seller is going to remain in the business, either as a board member or some type of employee, they need to understand that they're no longer the CEO and no longer the boss. And the, the buyer of the business, the search fund entrepreneur, is the new CEO, and the seller needs to fall into line and understand that they need to exist in a system and a process and some things are going to change. And if they can't internalize that, it might not be a match. And it does take some time at first for the seller to understand their new role after the business is sold. Yeah. For sure. For sure. These are emotional processes, that's for sure. So one way to test all this, Bob, a friend of mine suggests, but issuing a term sheet, so a non-binding list of all the terms and conditions of the transaction and asking the potential seller to sign it. So there's something symbolic and very emotional about putting your signature on a piece of paper. And if the seller does that, it might be a positive signal that they're truly ready to engage in a transaction. All so right. those are six telltale signs you might look for. And then you also spoke in the same case note about the three types of potential sellers, which goes hand in hand with the six signs that we just spoke about. You spoke about the partner, the transactor, and the no tolerance seller. Yes, yes. Can so you give we, us a little detail on that? Sure. So I think you could put potential sellers into three, three buckets. And uh, once again, the potential buyer, our search fund entrepreneur, needs to do some detective work. So partners are wonderful. They're the ideal. Uh, partners have highly ethical behavior. They're reasonable and fair. They add value to the business. And the buyer is interested in having a long-term, commingled economic relationship with the seller. So they're the best. They could do something good for the business and you want to be partners with them for a long period of time. So those are people you'd like to do a deal with and you'd like to have remain part of the business. Well, because regardless of what happens, what their role is, after you buy the business, you still may need the seller to make some introductions for you, to speak to a a customer or supplier, or they may just be getting a portion of the purchase price in the future in terms of an earnout or an installment sale. Sure. And these are people you'd, del you'd be delighted to have around the table, and they are eager and enthusiastic to see you succeed and help you. Okay. The next, the next bucket is transactors. These are still good people. They are ethical. Uh, they're reasonable and fair but you might not see a role for them in the business in the future. They are one and done people. You, you're more than willing to happily transact with them, but you do not see a future economic relationship with them. And, and equity is the most expensive currency. So uh, searchers should be um, careful about including sellers in their in their capital table going forward. So these are people that you're thrilled to do a deal with. 
and you want to have a pleasant relationship after their transaction, but then they might not necessarily either be employees of the business, shareholders of the business, or board members in the business. Now, it's interesting. I tell my students that regardless of whether or not they're going to have a role in the future, you still want the seller to be available during the transition period, regardless of whether they're going to have a role as a full-time employee or a long-term employee. No, no question, Bob. Uh, I, I, you absolutely want that option, but the transactors might not be appropriate for board seat. They might not be appropriate shareholders. Okay. They're they're excellent people to interact with, but it's a one and done relationship. Keep them on your holiday card list. Politely call them once a year to check in, but they're not economic partners, and they cannot add future economic value. All right, and at the same time, you don't after you buy the business, you don't want to disparage them in any way. Absolutely not. Yes. They've been. They, you should be very grateful for the transactor. And about not disparaging, that applies to the next category, the no tolerance seller. Yeah. So we all know these people, Bob, these are highly litigious people. They live on the edge. Everything's sort of gray and murky and slightly unethical behavior. They're difficult every step of the way. Every deal point, every part of selling the business goes to the brink. Uh, they're confrontational. These are bad signals. And I will tell aspiring entrepreneurs that you cannot make bad people behave well through legal documents. That's a folly, which I have fallen prey to. And I, and I hope my students and entrepreneurs do not make the same mistakes I have made. So no tolerant sellers are people that you just want to steer clear from. You cannot do a deal with them. Or if you make the mistake of doing a deal, you're setting yourself up for a very difficult process uh, with lots of headaches and grief after the close. Well, the old adage is that good people are always better than good documents. No question. And um, no question I guess, about that. But and these are. I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, 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 please. You're the host. And I mean, and is there anything else on this? Because there's one other item in this article before we conclude, I just wanted to focus on. Um, and you spoke about how buyers may approach a potential seller with a superior tone. And it happens in many cases because we have brilliant students. Yes. That you and I both teach. They have great yes. degrees. They have great credentials. Yes. Yeah, so so we are both incredibly fortunate, Bob. We we have the opportunity to work with and teach with these incredibly impressive, highly credentialed students that have done amazing things and will continue to do amazing things. Um, and, and there's a risk that students approach sellers possibly with a condescending attitude or with some disdain. And I always caution potential buyers to to approach sellers with humility, appreciation, respect, curiosity. Uh, these are sellers who have built businesses very often from scratch. Uh, they've done a great job and they might not have the same experiences or skills as our students and potential buyers, but they deserve to be uh, honored for what they've done. And our students, potential entrepreneurs, are gonna build on that legacy. And to approach that uh, process with respect and appreci appreciation will go a long way. Uh, furthermore, Bob, I encourage students to think about 
the fact that they're not buying a business. They're selling the concept of trading a business for money. So I don't need to tell you, Bob, it's a very competitive market right now to buy a good small business. There are plenty of people that want to buy good small businesses. So someone who's trying to buy a business needs to be in sales mode as much as they are in buy mode. And I encourage them to step into the seller's shoes and try to best understand what does the seller need and want? And how can I deliver what the seller needs and wants to get this transaction done successfully for both parties? Well, in To Kill a Mockingbird, there's a line that you can never understand someone unless you put yourself in their position. And that's- I like- I that's like that literary reference. Good yeah. for you. <laughs> I, I, I like, I mean, it's just, it's so applicable here and keep in mind, you know, they should all keep in mind that when you're buying a business, you're asking the seller to literally turn over their baby, their children, where they spent their life and to have confidence in you that over time you're, um, you're going to pay them the, um, what you, the agreed upon amount. If there's a deferred payment, you're going to keep the employees happy. You're going to satisfy the customers and you're going to continue to expand. Now this is just a great. Um, I, I re- this has just been great. We've spent I don't know about twenty five minutes going over this article or this case note. And if they, before we conclude, because I'd like you to conclude with any other comments, I would like to have your promise that you are going to allow me to have you come back on another <laughs> podcast for another one of your articles in the future. Yeah. Bob, I'd be thrilled and flattered. It's my pleasure. So whatever, you, whatever you'd like to talk about, I'd be happy to do so. Now, are there any parting words of advice or statements you want to say other than you and I are both so um, um, big proponents and big supporters of, of students doing this? And to me, it's so exciting to see these students coming out of school and buying a business and creating jobs and creating opportunities for others. Yeah, I, I don't think I have anything really to add other than I wish uh, search fund entrepreneurs, aspiring, aspiring entrepreneurs, good luck in their journey. And I hope that this conversation has helped them identify and figure out what uh, what are signals that a, a seller is real and ready to sell emotionally, intellectually, and financially, and to avoid sellers that are not ready to engage in a transaction. And also the seller may not be ready now, but in a few years, they may, may be ready. And that's why you always want to have a good relationship. That is it true. Could come back. Right. Don't well, AJ, thank you very much. And thanks for your time. And um, hopefully anyone's listening to this may get a copy of your article, I guess, by going to your uh, website at Yale. And that's correct. Out. My bio page at Yale has the all my case notes available to the public. And I got to tell you, they're... They're they're very interesting and they're very exciting to read. So thank you. So thanks Bob, a lot. Bob, all the thanks go to you. Thank you so much for the invitation and for hosting me. All right, thank you. <laughs>